Welcome to the African Tech Roundup. Now, this is where we round up the most important tech, digital, and innovation highlights from across the African continent. My name is Andy Lemasugwe, and with me on the mic is my main man, the consummate co-host. That is Musa Kalenga. What's up, bro? What's up? I got a new title. Yeah, yes. man. <laughs> got to refresh the thing. <laughs> Thank you very much. Good to be back. And always uh, great to be chatting with everybody around Africa. Got a great show lined up. Yes, we certainly do. We got to stay dope, man. Yes, we got to stay dope. Listen, we're also really pleased to have a special guest on this installment of the African Tech Roundup podcast. Joining us all the way from Germany is Oliver Sauter. Now, he's the co-founder and head of strategy product and operations at worldbrain.io. Welcome to you, Oliver. Thank you, guys. Welcome, welcome as well. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to a nice chat around fake news and the world of the next internet interoperability, data privacy, and ah, we're gonna we're gonna spasm out on that one. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Thank you so much for joining us. I mean, this is the actually actually the very first time um, we've roped in a, a long distance participant in the main uh, sort of flagship podcast uh, because we certainly wanted in on everything you guys are trying to do at World Brain. We're going to hear a lot more about that. Um, but your LinkedIn bio says that you've been working on battling misinformation since 2014. Um, that's pretty much before fake news became a thing. So what the heck were you doing, bro? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I always say like before it became uncool. <laughs> oh, fake news. Oh, snap. <laughs> You're like the Ooh. Iron Man of fake news. I Ooh. like that. <laughs> yeah, like, um, yeah, I was back then the, the topic of fake news for me was um, around agriculture and genetically modified food and nutrition ah. and stuff like that. And I was, I had the sense that um, this problem is a, a far bigger one and that needs to be solved in order for a lot of challenges um, in our global society to be solved in time. That is uh, a critical point, no doubt. And yeah, so it was a journey um, to get to that point. And I think we have a good plan now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we'll come to that part later. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Cool. And I mean, for the listeners who obviously can't see what we're doing, but we have a plan to help you into, well, we'll have a plan to pull the curtain back on the hustle. <laughs> As it were, to let you in, draw to, to, to draw back the curtain, draw back the curtain on Rip the off the yes. No, but yeah, we 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 have um, we have a documenter in the house. Uh, shout out to you, Cindy Leah. <laughs> she's off the mic, but she's taking um, photographs of you know of everything we're doing behind the scenes. And the reason I mention this is because uh, we, we're we're speaking to you via Skype. We've got a picture of you, and I was going to say actually because I was staring at you, and, and you you can see us fully, um, Musa and I. That uh, because of your background in, in genetically modified uh, issues, you look like a healthy guy. I, I'm, I'm sensing not a fan of the GMO. <laughs> um, I'm actually a fan. Like, uh, Are you for real? Uh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, or not, not. I'm say I have a balanced view on on the pros and cons of GMOs. What are the now? pros? I'm interested to hear. So we, we <laughs> for real, we're we're gonna spend a little time. And I'm not I'm I'm not really well versed versed in the in 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 the area, but mm -hmm. I do think I have a leaning towards. Hey, you know, ancient grains and all that. Don't don't mess with my you know don't mess with my food. Don't mess with my food. <laughs> don't mess with my food, bro. <laughs> Just unpack that for us. I mean, that's a, just an, an unexpected sort of rabbit hole. Yeah, we can uh, a few words about that. So basically, 
the the gist of the whole GMO debate is is that um, everybody thinks that GMOs are super unhealthy and unsustainable, and that organic agriculture um, is uh, so much better. Um, and it certainly is not the case. Um, a lot of genetically modified uh, plants are actually very beneficial for the environment and can help us to be more sustainable in, in terms of like scaling up our agriculture to, to hold 12, 13, 15 billion people in the future. And the people I work with, they have also a very balanced view and they call it GM organic because the, the future should be to, to, to not have a binary view on, okay, this is bad and this is good, but picking the best stuff from each from each sector. So what can be learned from permaculture, what can be learned from organic agriculture, what can be learned from conventional agriculture, including GMOs, um, in order to just come up with the best and most sustainable concept. Uh, for example, like um, in, in, in the U.S., uh, the, in the last 25 years, the corn area of corn that has been planted has quadrupled. Um, but we have decreased the use of pesticides uh, by 30% overall. And that is mainly due to the fact that we could use um, like herbicide-resistant plants. So I'm, I'm going to stop you before people um, accuse us of plugging Monsanto on our show. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm messing with you. But no, you, you no know, I'm not affiliating with Monsanto. I know I'm messing with you. The, the reason I'm, yeah, just, sure, sure. I'm actually just kidding. It just occurred to me that on this issue, you you are at least in terms of thinking and approach, similar to how we like to view uh, digital innovation, uh, tech, its application on the continent, the, the the evolving narrative around what Africa needs and how. Yeah. And and yeah. for a lot of people, it's this binary discussion of everyone needs a mobile phone or everyone needs this. So, mm. you know what I mean? Let's, mm. let's back agribusiness. Fintech's amazing, you know, and we're like, well, yeah. it's a little more complicated than that. And I feel I feel privileged actually to be schooled. I am so going to dig into this yeah. after this episode. And we probably have to have another one, yeah. given how big agro, agro and agribusiness Agritech is becoming as a trend on the continent. Yeah, it's Absolutely. funny. I'm actually speaking at an Agritech conference soon. What I believe that people really need to learn is, is that the world is, is not black and white. Um, it's uh, uh, to be jokingly about that. It's at least fifty shades of grey. <laughs> oh, my word! Mic drop moment. Mic drop moment. But Musa, you you, yeah. you said you're speaking at an agritech. Yes, I'm, actually, I'm speaking at a distributors conference for uh, a a big agriculture firm. Um, and one of the main topics there is kind of how agriculture is responding to this 21st century. Um, and I really like what you're saying because I also share the view that, you know, taking kind of superior qualities from lots of interesting things actually produces a better outcome. And I think this, the scientific term is, is hybrid vigor or hybrid theory or something along those lines. But essentially yeah. it says you can take the, the, the best out of lots of kind of mediocre things or the best out of a few bad things and you can actually collectively create something better ultimately that serve the purposes yes. of the ecosystem. So I think that actually yes. complements exactly what you're saying around uh, G- GM organic, um, as opposed yeah. to the you know quite a negative view that most people carry around GMO um, as a you know as an idea. Yeah, yeah. Like, and 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 one has to be aware that this is big business also for the organic industry. So the organic industry puts about a billion dollars a year into funding websites and ads, uh, etc., into fear mongering, partly fear mongering um, GMOs. Because obviously, if you produce a binary thought in in the consumer of like, okay, 
um, what do I do in order to get healthy kids, in order to stay healthy and, and support the environment? I, the only thing I know is GMOs are, are fucking bad. So the marketing label of organic says there's, you can be 100% sure that there's no GMO in there. Right? And if, you, if you have a no nuanced view, you're going to go for the organic food because you think, oh, okay, at least it's not GMO in there. And I don't have to know all the rest. It's just not GMO. And so, wow, yeah, it's like uh, it's is... like the argument for electric vehicles versus petrol vehicles. There's yeah, a, there's a whole psychology around how they're kind of preserving the electric. I mean, the the the, the petrol and diesel engines, um, and it's going to completely yeah. disrupt the the value chain and the production line of uh, you know of all these big businesses that have made a lot of money from it. So, but there's also the the other view in in that space that uh, you know the demand, the spike in demand for everything that goes into making batteries and solar cells and all these other things hmm. uh, and the impact of, uh, on the environment of those things. Hmm. Like not really talks about that. We go, okay, let's just use the sun. Well, it's not just putting a bowl of water out there and, and absorbing the sun's energy. It's hmm. like, um, it, like we have to sort of mine like rare minerals and blessings. <laughs> Vilibrium from you know, Wakanda. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm so glad we started with this. And I think as a, you know, as a sort of tone setter for the kind of conversations we really hope to have with you, Oliver, thank you so much for doing this. Even before we did like the promo, like the, the, the promo segment, I am loving it. Now we have you on the show, uh, not because we knew anything about your, your proclivities for genetically modified <laughs> organics, but because of the work you guys, uh, you guys do at uh, world brain, uh, and, and how frankly, perfectly on trend, um, it is given this quote unquote fake news crisis gripping the world, but also because your venture, uh, speaks to the broader debate regarding sort of personal data, what data is worth, how we as global citizens can start to wrest some of that control that we we've lost uh, back from big business that is, you know, that is, you know, have all sorts of agendas. And um, you're a proponent of open source software as well at a time when proprietary tech giants pretty much rule the world. Um, so I'm hoping we get a chance to chat about uh, all of this and more and get a sense of how we as Africans ought to appropriately frame some of these issues in a way that accounts for our context. Uh, being that you're in, in, in Berlin, Germany, um, uh, you know, we're increasingly uh, a global uh, village, but certainly certain things unique to us as a developing uh, part of the world uh, that we need to think about. So are you game for that, Oliver? Of course. All right. but I'm let's. All, I'm all hot. Fantastic, <laughs> man. But first, let's do this. This episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by... Us. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> Masai. By us. <laughs> That's right, folks. We're totally hijacking the sponsor segment to let you know that Musa and I will be hosting an African Tech Roundup Live podcast event in Amsterdam on Tuesday, June the 5th. Now, in terms of the theme, well, well we're going with hashtag Village Diaries Amsterdam because... We're truly, truly intending to bring the village to Amsterdam to get a sense of what's trending in the world of Africans and diasporans who are embedded in the city's growing local tech and innovation scene. But we also want to inquire into uh, Amsterdam's distinctive Africa-centric impact innovation vibe. And then finally, we certainly want to test the nature and strength of the connections that Dutch-based Africa-focused tech and innovation actors, and we're talking everyone from founders, policymakers, impact and innovation architects, investors, corporate pros, all of those, uh, what what sort of connections are being made and maintained with the continent? We want to know all about this and we're coming to find out Amsterdam 
The event will feature a panel discussion with UX designer from Booking.com, Babu Sinyoni. Uh, he's my homeboy from Zimbabwe. Of course, uh, uh, the Netherlands' very own director uh, for private equity at Velocity Capital, Alad Lushinger. And uh, you can look forward to a fireside chat and Q&A session with our very special guest for the evening, uh, Nigel Bond, Charles Ojay. He's the founder. <laughs> I love this fake crowd noise Musa keeps doing. I love it. There's a crowd in here, man. There's a crowd in here. <laughs> uh, Charles Ojay, of course, is the founder and CEO of Hyper. So, uh, listen, heads up, though, if you're, if you're thinking this is going to be a place you come and attend and sit and listen or sit and watch heads up our events are super interactive so come ready to network with smart people and let your voice be heard right here in our village square uh, we fully intend to have as many of the most awesome views end up on the podcast and shared with the rest of the world here's your simple call to action if you are an Amsterdam based Africa focused founder policymaker. Uh, innovation architect, investor, or corporate pro, do yourself a favor and head to africantechroundup.com forward slash live to book yourself a seat to this event. You'll find all the deeds you need, including time, venue details, and the agenda and speaker list program. All of that is waiting for you at africantechroundup.com forward slash live. And yes, we took longer than usual because this is our show and we're taking over the sponsor segment, folks. <laughs> <laughs> crowd goes wild crowd goes wild we can't wait to see you there and and so a quick shout out again to our event partners of course 1% Club and VC for Africa uh, much love to them do check out the great work they're doing at 1%club.com and vc4a.com respectively that's 1% Club in words .com and vc the number 4a.com now, before we get into this week's discussion with our special guest, Oliver Sauter of worldbrain.io, Musa and I are going to chat through some of the month's more significant uh, ecosystem highlights. Now, Oliver, you're welcome to jump in at any time you like to give us your take on things. Uh, feel free, my brother. Um, uh, and uh, Musa, you know how the deal goes. Yes, um, it's been a fairly jam-packed month in terms of tech and innovation news coming through. Well done to you, Africa. Uh, we're only going to shine a spotlight, a little African Tech Roundup spotlight on what the team here considers noteworthy. So please, um, uh, if you feel we are leaving something out, an important signal or trend that we might be sleeping on, do let us know by giving us a shout on Facebook via facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. Send us an email via hello at africantechroundup.com or by tweeting at African Roundup. Right, so let's get going. Uh, speaking of Twitter, um, they're being taken to task for a serious bug, which uh, apparently allowed passwords, our passwords, those of us who, who use Twitter, uh, allowed these passwords to be stored unencrypted on an internal log. Now, the company says it doesn't believe this data was compromised or accessed by dodgy elements, uh, sure, um, at least to their knowledge. Um, so public service announcement, everybody, to all our villagers, if you're a Twitter user, please change your password. Like, stop listening and change your password and then carry on listening. Yeah. Um, or say a little prayer. Say a little prayer. Say, our passwords, who are in Twitter, hello, be thy data. <laughs> <laughs> thy logs come. May, may, may my Twitter, may my, my, may my blue tick not be hijacked. Um, no change your Twitter password. Or add a six to the one, two, three, four, five. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> six to the one, two, three, four, five. Do you think there are actually people with passwords as simple as that? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, oh, tell yeah. people. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. So anyway, to make matters worse, I mean, 
Uh, Twitter's top engineering dude, a, a guy called Parag Agrawal, goes on and tweets this. Now, he says, we're sharing this information to help people make an informed decision about their account security. We didn't have to, but believe it's the right thing to do. What smack? I mean, really? I mean, dude, <laughs> really? Come on. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I'm leading with this because of the, the, the sort of Facebook infomercial we did in the last episode. <laughs> And, and I, it has to be said, um, I have to, you know, fess up. Twitter is my favorite social media platform. Really? It really is. Oh, okay. No, it, I'm not a Twitter person. Well, I'm, I'm kind of Twitterish, but I wouldn't say my favorite. No, you're not a Twitter person, actually. No. I'll, I'll oh, okay. go as far as saying you. that for you. Thank you for defining that. Uh, for but yeah, but I mean, <laughs> that said, uh, find them um, at Muzakalina <laughs> on Twitter. But yeah, don't expect much movement. But he, he's on Twitter, but he's, he's not a fan like I am. So, but I, and, I, and I say this really because I feel like, um, you know, we often get, uh, we often get like pushback on, no, you guys really drag people on the show and, and stuff. And it really isn't that. But you noticed at the top, we had no problem telling people to reach us on Facebook. Mm-hmm. We, we're fully on board the utility that that platform provides. Twitter, we love. But when people get it wrong, they get it wrong, right, Musa? Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, um, yeah. So, absolutely, Twitter. This is unacceptable. Uh, of course, to, to Agrawal's, uh, to Parag's, uh, you know, credit, he did, you know, backtrack and say that wasn't right. And really, in the in the light of us finding out that the same sort of researcher that that gave Facebook or that, uh, you know, sold Facebook data to Cambridge Analytics, you know, in barely a week since we found out that he also at some point had access to, mm. to Twitter's back end. Mm. Um, I mean, really, at the end of the day, like you could have been a little more uh, um, sensitive to, you know, yeah. how we're all feeling about this and certainly your responsibility to do the right thing. We yeah. shouldn't have to sort of drag you in order to do it and, and embarrass you on your own platform. Absolutely. Parag. But that said... <laughs> Um, staying with social media news, I feel like I'm obliged to check in with uh, you guys, certainly with Musa, who was here last time. Hmm. Uh, Oliver, feel free to, to factor in uh, on how you're feeling about the whole Facebook fallout, because since the last show, uh, Zuckerberg has appeared before the U.S. Senate. Apparently, the only place or the only government he's, um, he's well, talking to, he's, he's talking to or feels in, uh, he you know has the right to summon him. Um, but yeah, that's happened. And then, of course, the WhatsApp founder, uh, co-founder uh, Jan uh, Coom, resigning from Facebook's board. Just in case you forgot, uh, Facebook bought WhatsApp for $19 billion uh, in 2014. And Coom personally netted around $7 billion. He's um, apparently had enough now. And uh, Facebook... Uh, further has admitted it, you know, since last month, since we were last on the mic, that um, some 59,777 users in South Africa were potentially, quote unquote, potentially impacted um, by the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And so, yes, given those things, how are you guys feeling right now? Do you believe in the delete Facebook campaign, Oliver? <laughs> uh, no, not really. It's like a, it, it is a, um, a temporary push, but Facebook is has even though I don't support Facebook as a company and as a, as the strategies they have for like the, the thoughts they have for the web, uh, they have been incredibly successful in creating network effects that are really hard to break. So it's, you can't just leave Facebook. You will leave a lot of social contacts. You will leave a lot of information behind, even though comment sections, for example, are not always good, but they're still, there's basically so like Amazon, uh, reviews. It's really a, a trove of information that is hard to like, get out yeah and also isn't it isn't it problematic also that whether or not you're on facebook we've all since discovered that uh they are profiling you and 
you basically have to join them in order to make them stop. <laughs> yeah, they they even track you if you're not on Facebook. Yeah. So, so you you may know that the Facebook like button is a tracker. Uh, on every website that you visit that has the Facebook like button, you're tracked <laughs> by Facebook. Yeah. Even if you're not a Facebook user, uh, they they analyze your like your IP and your buying behaviors and stuff like that. So yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not cool at all. Well, as far as updates go, it's not exactly a cheery one, but there you go. <laughs> Staying with data, though, we think it's quite telling that any African startups with data play aspirations seem to be the toast of the town in VC terms. And I'm not just talking about some of the fintech startups like Branch and Mcorpa that we basically roasted uh, <laughs> on our last episode. Um, and it's worth mentioning, by the way, that since our last episode, Propaco. Um, they're the private sector financing arm of France's AFD. Well, they've made their first fintech investment on the continent, sinking three million US dollars in the Cape Town-based startup Jumo, which guess what? Unbanks the underbanked. Unba- uh, sorry, not unbanks. That, <laughs> that banks the unbanked and the underbanked people. It's this whole. We're trying to sort of um, promote financial inclusion thing um, through financial services via mobile phones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so this trend doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon. But there are other data plays making headway, like M Survey, for mm-hmm. example. They're a mobile first consumer feedback platform for businesses and consumers on the continent. Uh, they announced a Series A round of three point five million dollars mm-hmm. uh, that was uh, led by TLCom Capital. Shout out uh, to my boy who led that uh, that fundraise, eh? Oh, for real, Jacob. Yeah. Oh, for real. Yeah, Eritrean origin. Okay. Good boy. Good okay. Boy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So no, for real. Um, that that was really cool. I mean, uh, just FYI, if you want to know more about M Survey, um, go ahead and head to AfricanTechRoundup.com. Click on the quick Tech Chats button in the main menu. Scroll down to listen to my conversation with the company's founder and CEO, Kenfield Griffith. Um, he gave quite an insightful take on where he believes data analytics is going and, and how key it is to, you know, to sort of uh, optimizing business. Um, so he's, he's, a, he's definitely a friend of the show, but also quite different uh, to M-Survey, but still within the data business genre, Asoka Insight, um, a London-based startup with research bases in Nairobi, Lagos, Abidjan, uh, Addis Ababa, and, and Accra. Now, they offer data and analysis on companies from the continent for global investors. Now, think what CB Insights do in New York or around the world, frankly. Um, uh, Thomson Reuters, the likes of those kind of guys. They landed $3.6 million in funding around about the same time um, M-Survey did, bringing the startup, the startup funding they've raised to a total of $8 million uh, since sure. they, you know, they were founded in 2014. So, you know, I'm setting this, I'm setting the picture for, okay, definitely all these signals pointing to data and data plays of of various kinds being, you know, very sort of quote unquote investable. And, 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 and here's my question though, guys, Um, five years ago, three years ago, even Cambridge, a, a company like Cambridge Analytica would have been the toast of the town would you know they were definitely doing all the talks they were being invited to all these places to talk about all their exploits in the data analytics space and mm-hmm. how they were you know doing research differently and helping their clients achieve things through behavioral analysis and all these interesting things that were all data related mm-hmm. uh fast forward a couple of years and we're all going oh my word that horrible company you know i suppose my question to you oliver is um how excited should we be or perhaps cautious should we be at news like this um, in terms of like uh, emerging data plays on the continent that could potentially be either the next big thing in Facebook terms or the next big thing in terms of 
Cambridge Analytica and, and, and the problems we're seeing there? It's a very, I say it's very difficult to, yeah, to make like a, a simplified, uh, and analysis of that situation. I think the, the case with Cambridge Analytica is the problem to what it's been used, um, the data. So when you, when you look, for example, into the ad business, behavioral analytics is nothing new. Like it has been used for <laughs> since ads has been, have been invented, you, you try to manipulate people and you now have just better tools to do that. Wow. So, you make it sound so nice, right? <laughs> manipulate people. But, but you're right. That's what it is, right? Yeah, that's what it is. Like you try to get someone to buy st- something they were not aware of buying before. And, uh, the same is for a political candidate. They're, they're not aware that they want to vote for a certain political candidate and you want to make them do do that. I believe that essentially it's, it's more about in the long run, how is our data be used and how can we control its use that would, would democratize, uh, the ability to withdraw access, um, to, to, for certain usages. So for example, I don't want to have my data be analyzed for political purposes, but right now I can't do anything about it because Facebook or Twitter or Google are in all in control of my data. And so. Yeah, I, I I have no hope that it will change um, measurably without people having data ownership and without yeah w- without also laws changing in the ways we in the ways companies can use our data. So being a, a marketing practitioner, I'm I'm going to I'm going to put a marketing practitioner. I'm going to put it to you that it's the it's the science and the art of persuasion, right? <laughs> what you call manipulation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. but what what I what I'd like to find out from you, so. Obviously, we we understand that data can be used towards um, towards negative and or unsavory ends, but we also understand that data can be used towards very positive ends, right? And okay. and 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 my question is: given the stage and the state of advancement of most of the population of the world, who may or may not have an understanding of what actually positive ends would be, um, is a Cambridge Analytica really that bad? Because we are now diagnosing them based on something that went wrong, which wasn't, in, as we've mentioned, entirely new to the world that we live in. It just... By the way, Obama did it as well. Obama did it. Correct. Like in the Obama campaign, it was it was also used behavioral analytics. And Correct. Like, so yeah, I agree. Correct. It's nothing new. I think what might have fueled it, I think correctly so, is that when you add uh, the layer of politics, which politics are, you know, it's a really touchy subject, and it's something that you know, how how do you have the right to decide on the right way to vote for a person who's uninformed about the data or the information that you're using to be able to get them to think about a candidate or a you know have particular views. So from that perspective, I agree. But the the contrary view is that if you use data to be able to drive at ultimately a greater good for everyone, surely businesses like Cambridge Analytica should be should be hailed and they should be held accountable and try to be put into a place where they you know they're more accountable to the good they can do as opposed to the bad they can do. Just a contrary view. Not a contrary view. I actually agree with that. Okay. So um, it, definitely everything's a butter knife, right? You can use a butter knife to kill someone, but you can also... Very inefficiently, Oliver. There, there are better ways. <laughs> there are better ways to kill someone. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but you can. <laughs> you can. It's about the opportunity. So you, you can do a lot of cool stuff with data. Um, and again, it comes to the point of how can we ensure that you decide on what the data is used for and how do we keep companies accountable for the actions they're doing with that data. 
And certainly, it's, the question is, <laughs> what would have happened if Hillary Clinton gotten president and, and, and Cambridge Analytica would have been the company making that possible? The question is, what would be the outrage about that? Would, would people be really so frustrated about this circumstance, like with Obama, or would they just let it, give it a pass because, uh, it, it was agreeable for one side of, of the political spectrum to use that? Yeah, you guys have got me reflecting. I mean, even when you look at this whole fintech thing and, and how big business in general, not not just fintech plays that are coming to the party now. Banks, um, mobile telcos, frankly, anyone with a massive incentive to to milk unsuspecting or sometimes willing users of their platform or products or services of their data in order to make more money or you know sell more things. Um, when you think, when I think about it, I think on the content, my issue really is more with the lack of nuance and sort of uh, explaining both sides of what happens when you allow a certain mm. thing to happen. So in the case of when you allow use of data in a certain direction or by certain entities for mm. certain purposes, yeah. yes, there's steps forward for humanity in some way. Let's acknowledge that. Fine. Let's not be, let's not pretend there are no benefits, um, but let's also not pretend that there aren't sort of rubs to that as well. Mm. I think everyone needs to be held to account for the level uh, of oversimplification they they allow themselves to adopt or embrace in order to to justify profit mongering. Yeah, and obviously that the, the reciprocal um, view is that you know con- consumers ultimately also need to be held to account in some way, yep. shape, or form. Right? Yeah. So Us. yeah, exactly. So I mean, whether whether you know it's the process of educating at the same time as you enforcing certain ways to ensure that people have got an understanding. I mean, I, I think about some of the businesses I'm involved in and the data that we collect to try and essentially make, you know, as an example, better decisions for small businesses. Um, and the reality is through the capability uh, coupled with the data that they can give us, we can make really amazing decisions for their business, but they can't turn around and then say, you know, oh, you've used my data for something when you've benefited for it all along, you know? So there's, yeah. there's a reciprocal accountability, which I battle with in my head because I try and figure out, you know, I, I, how do you, how do you police that? How do you enforce that? How yeah. do you, you know, or, or don't you? I would give a segue to the interoperability issue here yeah, because this is, I think, key component to, um, to make that possible. So for example, if right now we're all frustrated with Facebook and we, the, the delete Facebook uh, movement has no effect because the network effects are so strong, right? So we act effectively cannot just all move to another network. It's like you go first. And no, you go first. No, you delete it first. No, you yeah, delete yeah, it. Yeah, and then I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> then no one goes. <laughs> I bet you go first. No. Uh, so yeah, so basically we're all locked into the service and we cannot move. <laughs> and this is the kind of um, accountability from a consumer side that cannot happen. So we cannot just say, okay, I want to quit. I want you, I want to now use Facebook too, because Facebook too is more privacy intensive, but provides me the same features. Um, and the say, and th- this is then what needs to happen is the, the, the right of interoperability, which I'm really happy now that um, the European Union um, has passed the GDPR laws because they're literally stating now all those companies need to provide machine readable endpoints where I can get all my data that is related to me out of Facebook, out of Google, out of Asana, out of Slack, out of whatever, whatever service I use and which, which will form this kind of, um, yeah, which would just make it possible that people migrate 
and 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 vote on on certain behaviors by companies with their wallets and with their data. So, but I want to ask you guys. I want to ask you guys a question then, based on that. I mean, does that dynamic not signal the demise of certain business models that has allowed us to see the level of innovation and creativity we've so far seen? Um, in in what's currently big tech? Not sure. Well, I don't see it as that. I, I, I... So can you repeat that question? Sure does, the, does this interop- does interoperability does interoperability <laughs> does interoperability? I will conquer this. <laughs> I will get this thing done. Uh, <laughs> does interoperability not signal, to some extent, a, a scuppering or even perhaps the demise of a certain era of? of sort of innovative thinking and innovative approach um, because that's part of the argument. People are saying this is IP. Um, it, we work hard to build it and we need laws that help us protect it and interoperability sort of undermines this. Um, it's great for the consumer, but in the long term, it's going to disincentivize an innovation. Is it the end of a particular era potentially? So I think the end of the era of unchecked, businesses that benefit from the network effect principle yes but i think the network effect is now being used with the consumer squarely at the center of the benefit of that network effect if that makes sense right so so i I think yes the end of an era of people that were able to build huge volumes of populations of people that got value and got locked in because of the network effect but the era that we're now going into is that the principle is still that people will will gravitate towards the thing or the platform or the technology that brings the most value it's just now there's an easier way for them to switch between so i mean i liken it to, to moving banks right the switching cost of being able to go from one bank to another or the switching cost of being able to you know change a service is now is now being enabled such that you are not un you know un, un, unnecessarily held hostage by the fact that they have so much data and they aren't actually substitutes for that service or that utility. Yes, um, I agree, and I I would add that uh, the argument for innovation is done before based on having enough capital to do so. Um, I believe that the the argument for innovation in the future is based on the. For one, the ability for the user to move and thus getting the best service they need. So innovation happens ar- around the user. Um, and secondly, that we're, that we need to move. And I think we move into an era of collaboration instead of competition. Uh, where, where, where companies, for example, say you have five different to-do list apps. Right now, all those to-do list apps re- repeat the same work over and over again, but they have the same data model underneath or almost the same. Um, so it's a title, a, a body, an assigned person, whatever. Uh, but they need to le- replicate all this work, right? And if you're in a, in a, in a space where interoperability is key, uh, people will start collaborating on key infrastructure. Mm, yeah. I, I believe that's my assumption of, of how that will play out. And then innovation can really happen because you can start developing um, a, a to-do list app that is for a scientist versus one that is for a journalist versus one that is for a student. And, and not one that's created on the basis of we are Facebook or we are Apple and it's not a it's not a huge brand anymore. It's not a brand it's anymore. It's like we're building, we're building this like ecosystem. And in this ecosystem there's many different players and we earn just as much as we can serve the best product to the maximum amount of users. And if those users don't think we're the best product for them, we don't earn money on them. Right. And and, I, and I'd actually take it a step further and you know, just listening to how you've articulated that. I mean I think you know, in, in a couple of years' time, you know, I, I also kind of would wonder: Does that mean there'd be kind of a natural death of 
sectors or industries as we know them, and they would kind of be replaced by utility, right? So organizations and industry will be arranged around utility as opposed to sectors, if that makes sense. So there's a word for that. It's called Amazon. (laughs) <laughs> pretty much so so i mean i think that because because that connects a lot of dots around if we get interoperability right it connects a lot of dots around if we're able to continue to innovate to solve the issue of utility because i think it becomes about utility at the end of the day right it's is this thing is, does this thing solve a problem for a human being so that'll continue to be square and center in my mind but then the constructs of traditional you know sectors or industries or uh, or verticals that then just falls apart I, I assume because then you can have you know people in 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 pharmaceuticals technically who've created utility in you know in in hospitality as an example yeah um, and then you do away with that kind of artificial structure of of uh so I'm going to ask you a question based on what you're asking right mm. now as mm. um, a brand marketer. Right. Um, oh, it's a mess. I can answer your question. So, right. yeah. So in the, in the context of what you just described. It's a mess. How um, the whole notion of building brand yeah. and and b- brand as a differentiator, as sort of a, a unique selling proposition, yeah. as some sort of, you know, unfair advantage in a market, yeah. all of that. Yeah. You're basically saying it'll be, a time is coming that that might not be a way to think about life. Yeah, it'll become a mess. It's already a mess because I think if you if, if, if that's the view, then kind of the functional components of a brand start to become increasingly more irrelevant. Um, the emotive components of the brand become where the value sits because if emotionally I've got you because I am such a, I mean, I'm, I'm ingrained in your heart and your mind in such a way that you believe I can solve any problem for you, then it actually doesn't matter what sector I'm solving it in, right? So if Apple, as an example, has got a special place in my heart and as a consumer, I believe Apple has brought me a wonderful device experience because of the machine I use. If Apple then says to me, here's some, here's some, here's some medicine. Why don't you try it out? Um, because hmm. of the like position, Google is doing with pharmaceuticals, uh, correct? Or, or insurance the, or whatever. All right. Yeah. Because so because the brand equity around the problem they've solved for me in the past and the relationship I feel I have with them as a brand, kind of I'll forgive them for going into another industry and offering me a service. In fact, I'll be more receptive to it. So so yes, it'll become a mess for brand marketers traditionally because I think increasingly the functional components of what we go out and we say are you know better price, better this, better that, and insurance and banks and all of them are literally going to be in trouble because of it. Their business models were built around functional. I mean, their brands were built along functional lines. So it's going to require a more astute and a more adept uh, marketer, number one. Number two, it's going to require a marketer who can see into the future so they can connect unrelated dots of the most probable movement where they'll be from where they are, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And the reason I said Amazon and I said it tongue-in-cheek is because I, I think they're just killing the whole platform play, which I think is what we're talking about, except not just behind a single brand it is in the case of of Amazon, right? Yeah. So, yeah. for for example, something like um, this infrastructure, if it is done interoperably, it is somewhat interoperably. Like you have like all the marketplace participants that can have their own shops on Amazon, so it creates this kind of platform um, that allows other players also to make money. Except like not only Amazon, even though Amazon makes money off them as well, but. Um, uh, in, in, for for some things, you it's very very hard to bring this interoperability into place into place because if you have a logistics business, you have a lot of hardware, 
Uh, with software businesses, it will be a bit easy. Like it will be a bit easier. Quick and sorry, we've yeah. ju- we've jumped the gun. I know we're already in, in interoperability as a subject, but we didn't actually define it. So I know there's a lot of us that are maybe out there that have been hearing this word or you know have interacted with it. But I'd I'd really like for you just to you know define what in your mind um, interoperability is, um, so that I suppose we've got a common place of departure. I think it's so d- perhaps it'd yeah. also be useful for yeah. me to sort of because there's some you know. Uh, news highlights that right. might also help you know land, form, yeah, land this for for our audience and Got then it. and then oliver please factor in on what uh this word means within your context and how you're thinking about it and i have i'm actually particularly interested in your take on this because of you because you're a, an open source software proponent and i'm wondering if that colors your view of the word and and what it means and how it, you you ought, it ought to be you sort of applied but mm. um so in that vein let's talk interoperability that hateful word that I can't say today. I don't know if I want to do it. So, so in, in, in the context of what's happening, uh, what's really trending right now in East Africa, certainly in Kenya, is the fact that M-Pesa, uh, thanks to efforts by the country's ICT ministry and the Communications Authority of Kenya, um, sort of uh, frankly putting pressure on the various mobile telco players, not least Safaricom, that own M-Pesa. Um, well, they finally uh, succeeded in in seeing M-Pesa become interoperable, which in, in this context basically means that M-Pesa is now usable across other networks, not just Safaricom. And after Tanzania, um, t- Kenya is reportedly only just the second African country to pull this off. And, and what does this all mean? Well, prior to the introduction of wallet-to-wallet interoperability in this context, uh, mobile money pa- platforms in Kenya largely were I suppose sort of walled gardens and and only subscribers of specific uh, mobile telcos could sort of send money to each other via these wallets. Um, so Safaricom uses could use Mpesa, uh, Airtel uses had their own thing and that and and so on and so forth. And and now all of that has changed. And trending in South Africa, on the other hand, is First National Bank, uh, one of you know the country's largest banks, rolling out um, an interoperable version of their very popular e-wallet function, which was, uh, uh, if you're an, an FNB customer, uh, a, a wallet that you could use to send money to anybody with a, a smartphone number, the person would receive that, that uh, amount, request a PIN, and then go to any ATM and withdraw. And, but that's something that was limited to to being an FNB client, at least in terms of sending the money. Anyone could receive it provided they had a phone. Now with what they're calling e-wallet extra, anyone provided you're a South African citizen, which sucks because I can't use it, um, um, can use it, uh, can can basically send money to any number. So basically they're banking anybody who who's, who cares to use the service. And I'm just using that as an example, a practical example within the African context of yeah. what interoperability within a technological context might look like when a big brand like FNB or Safaricom decide, actually, let's allow more than just the people within our data set or within our customer uh, base to use the service and actually interact with other platforms. In the case of M-Pesa, now you can interact between M-Pesa and, 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 and PayPal, for example, for the first time. So that's just another example uh, of that. So in, in the context of Berlin and Germany, like what is it looking like and how, what's your thinking in terms of this? So interoperability has can be seen from different contexts. And um, the interoperability, interoperability that you mentioned is one of more of an, inti- like with PayPal and these other payment services, for example, the integration it's not necessarily uh, an interoperability in itself. And interoperability means that 
if you have access to the protocol, you can exchange information in that sense. And so, for example, um, a good, uh, good and old example for interoperable protocols is email. You can use any email client and you can still send each other emails, right? You can swap out the email client and suddenly you can still, like, it doesn't matter which email client you use. And so this interoperability in that context means that a, da a data structure, for example, can be used in many different contexts and many different applications can have this common denominator where they can talk to each other. Um, and in a, in a more, more, um, Modern context, it would mean that you could use WhatsApp and send people on Telegram a message. Yeah. And so how intentional do you have to be in the founding stage of a technological platform? How, how early on does this need to be part of your thinking or your plan for this to be, for this to be possible as you've described it? Uh, for, from the get go. Uh, so what, what we're, for example, developing this summer is, or maybe a quick, a quick, um, wrap up what we do. So what we do is we develop your own personal mini Google for your browsing history. Um, and it will evolve into this kind of web research assistant or snippy, uh, jokingly said, uh, your browser on steroids, uh, where you, where you can do stuff, interact with content, um, in a much deeper way. And one of the features that will afford this is comments and annotations. So you can basically attach comments to pages for your own notes and also highlight pieces of the text and make notes on the highlights instead of like going to a note-taking application and doing that. And and I'm sorry, and all of that happening without you sort of surrendering data to, to third parties who are busy oh, monetizing it Oh, this it data elsewhere. is completely on your computer. We have, as a company, never access to this data. Um, so that's yours. Uh, our, our business model also doesn't depend on monetizing your data. What we're trying... What we're, what we're doing is we're building the data model for the annotations on a data, on a data format called the open annotation data model, which is already a standard defined by the W3C consortium. So this means every annotation software can potentially, that supports the standard can read the annotations. And there's no necessary, no additional, uh, integration necessary. For example, if you use, um, Gmail and Evernote. Evernote, yes. And you, those, those two companies need to provide inter integrations to each other. And that is a singular work and cannot be, need to be replicated for every single integration that another person does, right? And interoperability means that this integration doesn't need to happen anymore because there is a common, a common format, a standard that can, every, everybody can, that supports that standard can read it. And so every participant, every app can exchange information. So that's the difference between the example of M-Pesa now being, uh, now having a bridge to, to PayPal, for example, and yes. the difference between that and what FNB has created as a whole new platform that allows anyone with a cell phone number to, to basically create a wallet with them. So they created a standard and they created an, uh, yeah, a standard, whereas the other created the integration. Right. So, I mean, a few things because it's really fascinating. So, so, so the incentive to, to, to cooperate to this extent, right? 
without it necessarily being uh, mandated and or someone having to do it because of any commercial incentive. Um, surely, the, so so who, how do you drive that? So if you look at an, you know, you, the great example of, of emails, at some stage there needs to be a protocol written for emails to be able to be received in, in by lots of different technologies and in lots of different formats so that anyone could pretty much transfer, you know, across. But there was a protocol that was written and everyone had to subscribe to that protocol and that protocol became a standard, right? So in, in the different industries in the different you know verticals or technologies, there would still be a reliance on on standardization of some of some sort, and that standardization obviously would drive this um, this interoperable um, you know participation and or collaboration. Am I right? Yes, um, you're right, and indeed uh, there's also challenges with stuff like that. So, for example, updating an email protocol uh, it has been there for decades in that in that form. So uh, getting all the participants to upgrade is a, is a really tricky challenge and is, um, is sometimes even impossible. Um, so for example, if you now want to suddenly support uh, location integration into email, like you can do with WhatsApp messages or whatever, then this is just not possible unless everyone subscribes to a new email standard. Um, and what I think is necessary is, and this, this is now driving deep into economics, is that we need to have on the economic level uh, of how companies operate and how companies, companies interoperate, we need more incentive structures for collaboration. Because if we have these incentive structures for collaboration, then many more companies have an incentive to collectively change the protocols. Mm. Right now, if you have 10 email providers, there are 10 out of 10,000, uh, but they, they might want to change a protocol, but they need to convince everyone else. But if everyone else is based on like, okay, hey, we built an email protocol and we just have the incentive to abstract costs away to collaborate, then a change might happen faster. So some of the biggest companies of our time are essentially companies that are built on going, heck, we, we've been smart enough and clever enough and resourceful enough to build all these competencies in, in house thank goodness for capitalism that allows us to protect our interests and, and sort of, and, and profit from the hard work we've put in. You're, you're basically, you're basically suggesting a, a, a scenario that would upend the very premise on which an Apple or a Microsoft exist or an SAP exist and thrive. Indeed we are. And we have also internally in our company, we don't have shares. Um, so if we go down to the level, level of how, of how what do you have land at least? Do Can you, you have land? Have, like no shares? Do you have land? So you, you just like, so you see, I wish you had seen like how Musa and I looked at each other, like to your villages, like Musa and I just like stared at each other, like no shares. Like we work on a different uh, economic model and it's called steward ownership. And I, if you want, I can send you a Ted talk by Armin Storjanagel who, who, propagates this model. Can you give um, us the executive summary? The, the, the basic motivations of that change was that uh, I realized that shares as a participation model in growth uh, creates an incentive structure for competition and centralization of power. This is because an investor will get, go into a company and invest only under the premise that the virtual value of that company increases, right? Like it is a virtual intersubjective agreement that many people make when defining the value of a company, which is not directly bound to the actual value that this company generates. This is true. 
I'm which is why you can be a loss-making entity like Uber and still be valued at like billions and billions of... Exactly, exactly. And for some businesses, you need that to, in order to grow and build this infrastructure, this ecosystem. But you need that growth capital to increase the ecosystem of that particular company. If you have an ecosystem of many companies that can abstract fundamental growth work together, then you need to don't, then every single company doesn't need 500 million to grow. Every company maybe needs 10. And, uh, if there are 50 companies, then they have 500 million to make a growth, to growth work. Um, so coming back to, to the incent or the motivations of changing the way we do business is that through this virtual, virtual growth of a company, um, and the expectations of the investors that this growth happens, the company is incentivized to suck in all users and all economic power as much as possible because only that justifies the hype. Yes, basically be Amazon or be Apple or be Uber because it's all or nothing. It's a zero-sum game. Exactly. And, and what that creates is centralization and it creates competition because you need to, you need to compete against everyone else in order to win. And it also rips away the the stewardship of the company's people. Yeah, because that's how we end up seeing guys send tweets like, "Well, we didn't have to tell you that your passwords were unprotected." Indicative of sort of like a, a an erosion of stewardship, I'd imagine. Um, I'm not. Sh- I'm. I'm not sure if I could build that bridge. No, no, I just mean. I just mean. Look, if you are truly, if there's a direct and very firm line between a business you're building and the good it's creating to for society and the the responsibility you have towards society to build a business that's both good for for you and whoever's building it as well as society there's there's almost no room and I'm sorry I'm sort of throwing the poor guy under the bus but the the attitude you take isn't well we don't have to report if something goes wrong it's the default position actually should be we're accountable to you as society regardless. And I know, and based on what you're saying, that I can see how that can erode when you, you have a concentration of power. Yes, so you have incentives to, to, to cheat. So, so you've, de- you've described quite well the, the status quo. So give me a sense now. So, it, you know, with stewardship as, as the model, what, what, what are the founding principles? How is that different? So I'm not an anti-capitalist, just to make that sure. I believe growth is important, and I believe it is important to increase the value of a company. Uh, but it's about um, that with with share-driven companies, you have an unlimited growth expectation, right? It is it is unbelievable for me that a that a Peter Thiel invests five hundred thousand and gets out with a billion dollars in 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 returns. Like this is, I cannot compute how how this is a fair contribution to his actual investment and risk that he took. Hmm. It's just not. It's just too much. Um, and so the the requirements for steward ownership means that you have a limited return, but a fair, like a, a, a proper proper return based on the risk you take, and that the company always stays in full control of their operations and not in control of investors, and that you that you limit eliminate the virtual the virtual component of how the value is defined of the company. Yeah. Because the virtual component increases speculation and brings us in all these cycles. And I believe many, if not most, uh, problems we have in the world can be boiled down if you follow the why, 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 why to the way we do business and the way we have the speculation in our, in our economies.
So, so risk, you mentioned risk, right? Because that I think is the reason, mm-hmm. you know, you said, how is it that Peter Thiel can put in 500,000 and get, you know, crazy, crazy multiples back? So it's this notion of risk, right? It's this notion that, you know, I'm, I'm putting, I'm, I'm pretty much taking, uh, I, I'm foregoing X amount to invest it in, in, in you because I believe in you. And therefore that mm-hmm. foregoing, uh, you know, it, it, there's a risk allocated to that. And there's a risk allocated to you as an individual potentially fulfilling or not fulfilling, um, on what I'm, I'm investing in. So I'm interested to understand the definition of risk, how it's different. Or are you just simply saying that you define the risk according to a pre-agreed set of standards or, you know, whatever it may be, such that it never goes past a certain level? Um, the, the risk definition is pretty similar if you would have a funding round with a VC. Um, um, like the risk is the same for the same stage of a, of a project. Okay. Um, so steward ownership means that uh, uh, the investor gets shares, but these shares are have no voting rights. There's one one element of it. So they can never influence your decisions. They have some red lines, obviously, if like the third year losses, then they can decide and have escalation paths in order to replace you as a steward of the company, which is fine. Um, but they have no direct voting rights or can force you to sell the company or stuff like that. Oh yeah, but second, second factor is the shares are non-tradable. They're just there to have a security for the investor in case stuff goes wrong. Um, and the company has the right to buy back those shares at any given time to a predefined multiplication factor. So, for example, what we're offering investors now is to say you get five times the amount that you invested back in cash. And it's paid back by the profits, the EBITs that we have per month. Um, and this way you have a very, like, you're in it for the long term, you get a proper return on invest, but you're, and you get it in cash. It's not just that you have to wait until, like, in 10 years you get maybe your exit and stuff like that. You get it continuously over those years until the debt is paid back, until every share is, uh, is bought back. Technically speaking, you're not looking for an investor in the traditional sense. You're looking for a well-informed, hopefully well-healed, and, and fairly understanding fan slash believer. Yes. Yeah. 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 Cause yeah. I mean, I'm not going to, uh, so, I mean, you, you're for not VCs. incentivizing me on how I can trade or, you know, I, I can, this is, this is a tradable asset. Um, uh, or, you know, you're not giving me tons of opportunity to exit on, on a way up to, you know, on, you know, ba- based on a valuation that's not linked on like real returns. You're, you're basically reorganizing the market. And for me to buy into that, I need to believe. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, to agree, um, that was a bit, uh, fast before. Yes, I agree. In order to, and this is actually how it should be with every business. If you have a business that you run, you need to believe in it. If you're an investor, you need to believe in it. You don't, you shouldn't do it to invest in 50 companies and you just have two flying. Oh my word. Like you should, you should invest in every business that you believe in and stick with it for at least 10 years. Okay. You should, like that, this should be the time frame of every business. And if you make it based on a profits, then even a 10 million investment that seems like only VC scale, can be profitable because then you can say if that is a series A, you might only get back like three times the money, but you get 30 million back over the next 15 years, 10, 15 years. And if the company is highly profitable, then you might get it back in eight years. But your expectation is set. You cannot, you cannot go beyond that. And this means the incentive structure suddenly shift towards collaboration because suddenly you can give away profits. Because you serve the users that you need to serve and you serve them the best. And that's why you get profits. I just thought of something. Collaboration versus casino. Ah! 
it's building the casino in order to play together. Yeah. Not against each other. Fantastic. Hmm. So listen, we're going to move on because we really are out of time, but there's some important <laughs> yeah. things we, we need to touch yeah. on before we let you go. It's been, you know, it's been incredible so far. There's something you mentioned in passing that I want us to revisit. This idea that you, our, our previous guest in, in the last episode, Marvin uh, Colby, you've mentioned it as well. This notion of being in a position to own your data and presumably mm-hmm. be in a position to sell it or, or sort of, uh, benefit in some commercial way from from owning your data. Um, what does that look like in real terms? Because that sounds like a nirvana that 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 can't happen. Yeah. What 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 does that look like? Is that even a thing? Is it possible? Um, so interoperability is definitely a step towards that. Um, the, the 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 vision of how that would look like is uh, pretty much the way you described it before, where you as a user have all like you have the rights to move and own. You not necessarily own it. It can be in the hands of Facebook, but you have the rights to move it uh, and to to use it in whatever ways you want, uh, and and maybe trade them. Like maybe have an open market. And there's tons of companies in in, in the world that start already doing this. And in Berlin, for example, Ocean Protocol um, that started a blockchain based company on having a decentralized marketplace for your personal data. Oh, wow. um, means that you suddenly could say, hey, huh, there's a research group that needs particular data from me um, and I give them access to it and they give me a few cents for that. Um, and, and, or, or asking um, um, uh, an ad agency, <laughs> like an ad, an ad provider could suddenly analyze my data without my data leaving my computer and get a profile of me, but not knowing that I visited this website, not knowing what I bought, not like the company itself, not knowing that. Yeah. And what, what, what really need, I think a shift that needs to happen in the consumer's mind is to understand how, how much your data is actually worth. Because if you look in, for example, how much money Facebook, Google, et al. do with, like, make on your data, it goes maybe in Africa into the hundreds, but in Europe and in the US, it goes into the thousands of dollars of worth that is, per, per that, person? That, is that your data is worth. Sure. And, the only problem is how do we incentivize people to get back that data? Because um, there's there's a couple of services that out there say, hey, we, we help you to get back your data and you have like your data store and then you can do whatever you want with it. The problem is there is no real world incentive to, to make that step and go and download your data because there is no marketplace yet, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like you need to have a marketplace first in order to have your data be sold and the marketplace won't come until there's data to be sold. So just typical chicken egg problem. So, and furthermore, in our context in our in emerging markets in Africa, you need to have a digital identity to have centralized data, right? So the starting point is actually, you know, we solve for the, for a market segment we call the digitally invisible, um, you know, which is the long tail. So step one is, you know, you need to make most people visibly uh, or digitally visible before they can have a profile that becomes tradable on a marketplace that would then be able to, um, to actually, you know, be of value. So I want to ask yes. you both then, mm. what, in the context of this discussion, what future tax are we liable Ooh. <laughs> data tax man <laughs> what, what future tax are we sure. liable to to have to cough up as a continent mm-hmm. if we don't come right at in terms of the think in terms of thinking around this issue like oh. we're, we're so we're in okay. this nascent environment you've just described musa yeah okay we're obviously <clears> it's, um so a lot of these sort of financial inclusion plays data plays of all sorts are arguing that they're doing what you're saying they're actually helping 
promotes economic growth and 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 economic participation by bringing formerly quote unquote invisible people in digital terms to the table in ways that no one else is willing to do, even if you know they had the means to do it, like a bank or whatever. Yeah. And so they're arguing they're doing really good, Facebook included, right? They're doing so much good because the net effect is that you know these are incredible. There's incredible potential they're bringing online. Mm. Um, but what I'm saying is this is happening simultaneously with these, with the, with like the most intense data scraping of anywhere in the planet um, that's accompanying these efforts. Um, so what sort of future tax should we expect in the context of what you've said, Oliver, and what you've said, Musa? You mean future tax or tech? No, tax as in T-A-X. What's the opportunity cost of us not coming right on this issue or like in, in terms of failing to appreciate the value of our data at this particular time in history, what could the potential negative repercussions be in the future? An extreme version of now, like um, where you have cent- like very proprietary companies yeah. exploiting your data for reasons and purposes you have no knowledge or no control over. Yeah. I kind of see it like domain squatting. Remember back in the day where you could buy, like, it's the same, it's the same, isn't it the same concept as domain squatting? It's like, I think it'll be like digital identity squatting. Someone's going to own me online. Correct. Without you knowing Dang. that they're owning you and they'll be making profits from it because, you know, they'll find a way to, you know, Dang. yeah. So I think that's the, an extreme view, but that's typically what the commercial model would oh, be. Oh my word. Oh my word. So guys, we're going to move on a little bit, but I think that is just a sobering thoughts. Like the way you just put it there. Mm. Musa. Dang, bruh. So anyway, we're going to, we have a few more items. I just want to touch on um, just by the by, because it's important for, for the village square to start to factor in on these issues. Guys, we really want to hear from you on this. Um, give us a shout on, on, on social Facebook, Twitter, send us an email, whatever you need to do to get your voice heard on, on all the matters we're discussing here. Cause we want to hear what it means to you. And and this is also why it's quite important that we get to the next thing I want to talk about, which is a disturbing trend creeping across the continent. Uh, T- Tanzania is now one of several African countries doubling down on internet uh, regulation efforts that certainly go against the spirit of an open internet. Um, they potentially violate individual privacy. They trample certainly on citizens' rights to free speech and expression. Um, it's basically, you know, summed up in this ambiguous new law called the Electronic and Postal Communications um, in brackets, online content regulations, 2018, which now requires bloggers, get this bloggers to pay the Tanzanian government $930 a year to license a blog. Um, wait, I'm not sure if it's per year or once off, regardless, I think it's per year. And in addition to this, the government reserves the right to, to grant or withhold certification for any would be blogger in the country. This, this applies to online radio, television, streaming services, online forums, social media users. In fact, to be an authorized online content provider, you need to fill out a form detailing the estimated cost of your investment, the number of directors, stakeholders on the platform, the share of your capital, staff, qualifications, expected dates of commencing operations, and future growth plans, guys. And then, get this, you better not publish content that, quote, sort of causes annoyance, threatens harm or evil, encourages or incites crimes, or jeopardizes <laughs> national security or public health and safety. So, so don't speak. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, you could lose, or you could lose your license. Um, or, you know, speak. within 12 hours, or you could face fines of not less than, you know, in excess of $2,000 um, or even a year in prison. Jeez. Uh, internet cafes are even ex- expected to install surveillance cameras to record and archive activities inside their business premises. I uh, mean, 
Yeah. This is ridiculous. And this is all in the wake of Uganda's quote-unquote innovative move to tax social media users. Um, they're trying to, they, the government's saying they're trying to curtail gossip on Facebook and Twitter, uh, you know. And then, the, the, the you know, Ugandan president, Yuweri Museveni, um, estimated in a letter to... Um, uh, to his country's treasury that imposing a daily fee of up to 100 Ugandan shillings on all users would net the government something like $400 million a year. So he's like, yeah, this could also be a handy you means know. of sort of uh, of raising uh, of raising much needed revenue for our government. So guys, I'm raising this to put it out there like you in Germany, you must you must be thinking that is nuts because I know how liberal Germany is uh, with regards to some of these issues. But yeah, what do you guys make of this, guys? Oh, dude, it's just so disheartening. It's just like, you know, the, the lesson is that antiquated policies about trying to regulate human behavior is just, I mean, there, there's no way in hell it's going to work. Excuse my, my, you know, my very um, uh, emotional viewpoint. But it's, for me, it just really, it goes back to the fact that I think government and policymakers and people that are making these decisions are so far removed. Um, from the reality of technology, um, from the reality of the problems that technology can potentially solve for people. Um, and they're putting into place laws, processes, governing, governance, whatever you want to call it, um, that actually just show them up as being quite ignorant, in my view. So it upsets me because I think there's a lot that can be done with the energy and the time to liberate people, to try and get them to, you know, into, into the economic system, um, better educated, et cetera, et cetera, um, with the same amount of energy that's spent putting into, into, you know, into place these draconian and really archaic laws in my view yeah yeah absolutely yeah, yeah I, have to, I have to agree i i think it's um it's almost laughable <laughs> that this is happening uh obviously there's the sad part of what it means to freedom of speech but it is it will be so ineffective because we all know what happens like people will use vpns they will use have fa- they will ha- have alter egos on w- under which they block to circumvent these problems you, you you can't you can't it's like a cutting off a head of a hydra like it's not going to work and and so i'm afraid to ask what it, it, it means it, for podcasting i don't even want to go there it's just it's just shocking <laughs> but then um that's your voice yeah, <laughs> you can you can use like uh, like a voice voice um a, a voice a voice distorter a voice distorter and, 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 and sound, like, sound like these guys that that try to like um blackmail people Ooh, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Sorry, speaking of tax, I, I wanted to finish off a thought. So when yeah. you mentioned tax, I actually went one direction. It seems you went the other. But the direction I went is, so so I've got this digital digital identity. I can now essentially trade my 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 information to make money or generate revenue. How do they or how do I get taxed for that? So how does that from an accrual perspective? There now needs to be a, a tax or some kind of levy associated with me being, you know, deri- is there is it a capital gains tax? Is it a so I find that also another interesting avenue oh. of discussion because it's also like now an IP issue. <laughs> to what extent is this actually a property? To what extent is it actually transferable? Yes. Uh, to what extent does it actually um, count as an asset in all the ways we think of an asset in tax in tax terms? Yes. Well, it becomes an asset and, when now it's so. The definition of an asset is that something that you own that provides future benefit or future value. So this is now your digital identity. So it's absolutely an asset. It might be a new asset class. But it's absolutely an asset. And then it speaks to how Facebook's getting away at the moment and yeah. many other sort of uh, uh, software giants are getting away without uh, without having actual sort of registered presence in certain geographies. Correct. And going, well, 
only certain places have the right to call us up on because we're domiciled XYZ mm. in, in certain XYZ. So in that context, again, Digital what is IP? What do you own? Yes, what do you own? <laughs> How is it taxed? Jeez. Oh my word, yeah. And at the end, we come back to the, to the circumstance that people need to own their data. Mm. They need to, like, there needs to be a, cent- a central around the user, some sort of either protocol or storage that allows to, to, to map these transactions of value. Like if, if a person sells their data, it needs to, if he sells it, say, to Facebook and to Twitter and to a big ad network, like AdSense or whatever, then they, uh, then there needs to be a central point where, where this transaction is logged. Yeah. And you cannot do this, um, effectively by you just whispered blockchain. Those three companies <laughs> agreeing on, yeah, for example, blockchain could potentially be, it's, it's still years in the future until it, it will really happen. But maybe, um, but you, you won't get these three companies, um, to agree on a protocol. Very, very hard. And there's a, a tons of other companies as well. Like, I think the technology that we build in the long term could potentially bring us there. And so what, what World Brain and the Memex that we're, de- that we're developing. So the Memex is right now a search What's a engine Memex? for your browsing history and for your bookmarks. What's so a Memex? Search, full te- search engine. The Memex, yes. It's, so it's a full text search across all the websites that you visited and bookmarked. Um, but later, uh, the, the idea and the goal is, is to make the search across everything that you use. Like, be it your Facebook Messenger, be it your Facebook feed, be it your Gmail, be it your Slack channel, be it your notes, like whatever you use in order to organize and communicate your knowledge. Mm, you see, and doing mm-hmm. as a user, I'm kind of going, what happens when Memex turns against me? The, the Memex itself is run entirely on your computer. And you get also the software to, to completely self-host the entire server. So no one is ever in control of that data but you. And uh, obviously there's, there's huge security risks. And I was going to say, you better not lose your laptop. You better have a secure server. Yes, we, we still need to solve that. And I don't, I don't want to say we have solved that part and it's still a bit in the future to make that really possible. But essentially, it, if we solve this problem and we're, we don't solve them alone, it will be collaborative effort with a lot of other projects as well um, to make that possible. But if we, if we collectively solve this issue, it would provide the, the, the common denominator for, for data exchange to happen on a central point around the user. For example, now you have two note-taking applications. Why would those two note-taking applications develop completely different data formats? They could they could agree, or the user just says, like, here's an interoperable format. If you're developing a new note-taking application, you save a lot of development work by just taking the data format that is already there. Yeah. For example, and then you provide this kind of central point of data exchange, then you can start logging internally in your in your machine how data flows, maybe with some sort of blockchain and crypto-enhanced technology that makes it unforgeable. Uh, so you cannot avoid um, your dues, stuff like that. We'll see. So I want to close the loop on something we promised we'd talk about, and we really don't have time to, to dig, dig into this now. But That's I do so want you problems. to sort of draw a line between what you just talked about and how you're solving for the fake news problem. Okay. So the prevalent strategy on solving fake news is to provide uh, a singular rating on quality um, on what content is good or not. Right. Like Facebook tries now to make a rating on trust or attach related content to articles. But that's just one reality. It's one truth in, in itself. And I think even if we could scale this 
up, it would be unsustainable because it means that I impose or Facebook imposes a certain value system on the selection of that content, which would alienate a lot of users right out of the gate that don't believe in the, say, the progressive values or the liberal values that Facebook has. Um, and also those people who are critical thinking say like, ah, uh-uh, no, no, no. If you're claiming to have a truth, then you're out of it. Like you're not, you cannot be trusted. Yeah. And so our approach is not to define a single source of truth and try to scale ratings up to, to all content in the world. We're trying to make it at least 10x, if not 100x faster for any user to understand a topic deeply and with as many perspectives as possible. So that's a general approach of how we think sustainability, sustainability needs to work. How would that look like in, in practice? So the problem we're solving is one that you and I, we both do web research on a daily basis. And we have a very specific perception and experience that flows into that perception on how we, um, how we look at content. So when I read an article, I think, for example, it's example, a GMO article. I read this article and I have, through my experience, I can gauge, is this qualitative? Uh, if I, if do I trust the source? If I find a related paper, um, I have added a connection to content in my head. But I really cannot share this information with you. So when, when you go to this website the next time or research the same topic, you have to do the same work that I did before again. Yeah. And it's, it's very unlikely that you're actually ending up with the same quality because you have a different experience. Yeah. Right. And so it's inevitably happening that you're going to be misinformed on this topic. You might, I might be misinformed on topics that you wouldn't. Uh, so the idea is how can we make it possible that we can effectively and without frictions share our perception that we have on content, the perception of quality and the perception of connection context. Is that enhanced world brain? Yes, like it's 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 many brains connecting to form hmm. a more meta brain in that sense. So we're gonna have um, to we're gonna have to leave it there. And I mean, I feel like you've you painted an awesome picture. And uh, I encourage any of you guys <laughs> who who aren't haven't been to, at, up until this point aware of the work uh, Oliver and his team are doing at World Brain to go check it out at worldbrain.io. Uh, um, certainly, we you know hmm. you've certainly caught our attention all the way out here. And and this is a personal thing for me because I'll close out with this little anecdote, which is just a few weeks ago, my parents are over at my place and my dad is just turning into this uh, fake news sharer. Uh, can I say it again? <laughs> into this fake, fake news sharing machine. I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Leonard. No, but I, I say that with all the sort of um, fiction in the world because I, he, he, um, he's uh, 70 this year. He's an, an incredible intellectual and he receives stuff from what he perceives to be a pretty quality network of people. And and then once in a while he'll send stuff to me and I'm just like oh I'm in such shock at you know the kind of stuff that I feel like oh my word dad is sharing with his network and and so the, we've had this really difficult we've had to have the talk with my parents about like what fake news is I've had to say, share Jordan Peele's uh, fake news public service announcement uh, on YouTube um, you know he did with BuzzFeed and we were talking about this off mic and we all have relatives or people we're close to even within our professional circles who are so. Um, even myself included, if I'm honest, 
um, that uh, you know this, 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 the prevalence of fake news and our role in perpetuating the problem is so problematic and hence why we really wanted to cast a spotlight on some of the work you're doing and, and encourage some uh, independent thinking around these issues um, right here on the continent. You know, reach out to Oliver, find out how the problems we're seeing in East Africa, right here in South Africa, um, around misinformation of all kinds, weaponized information, uh, the increasing problematic uh, misuse of data and how it's being deployed against us as a, as a society. Like, it's our job to all care about how this gets fixed. And, and so thank you, Oliver, for, for sharing on that. And um, before we say goodbye properly, uh, one last time, we, we certainly want to remind you all of the upcoming African Tech Roundup live podcast event happening in Amsterdam on Tuesday, June 5th. Uh, we're theming it hashtag Village Diaries Amsterdam. The event will feature a panel discussion with UX designer uh, at Booking.com, Babu Signoni, private equity uh, director at Velocity Capital, Alan Lushinger, as well as a fireside chat and Q&A session with our special guest for the evening, Niger born uh, Charles Ojay, who's the founder and CEO of Hyber. But you know who we really, really, really look forward to rubbing shoulders with there that night? Any guesses? You! You, 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 our listeners. We can't <laughs> wait to see you there. Um, our events are super interactive. So come ready to share and network with smart people and let your voice be heard right here on our podcast, um, a.k.a. our Village Square post the event. And so if you are in Amsterdam over that period, if you're Africa-focused founder, policymaker, impact or innovation architect, investor, do yourself a favor. Head to africantechroundup.com forward slash live. Book yourself a seat to that event. africantechroundup.com forward slash live. And so with all that being said, um, we're obviously going to need to have you back on the show, sir, at some point. Um, we've got a, lo- a long laundry list of incredible people to have on the show, but we're going to have to touch base with you, even if to just steal your thoughts for, for, for you know, to enrich ours. Um, but certainly we're going to keep you in our network. You're officially an African Tech Roundup villager. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Actually, I'm th- I'm thinking of 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 going to Amsterdam this this day. Maybe we see each other there. My guy, it's not far for us. My it's guy, like a fifty dollar flight. Come uh, on, yeah, come please on, do. be please there. Do. Be there. Yeah, it's be gonna cool. be incredible. It's gonna be incredible. I have some you. good friends as well to visit again. So, uh, with all that being said, Oliver Sauter of WorldBrain.io. Uh, thank you for joining us today. As always, thank you to thank Musa you Kalenga, my main man right here, the dopest co-host. Thank you too for being here. My absolute pleasure. Whoop, whoop. Good yeah. to see you, man. Good to chat to you, Oliver. Um, been reading about you, obviously. Big fan of the work. Big fan of the stuff you're doing. So hopefully we meet you in person. So we yeah, know that you're not ha- fake. It has to happen. Awesome. I'm looking no, forward so to we know it. He's we're, not not, we're, not in, we're not talking to some hologram <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually not there. I'm <laughs> oh, stop it. You're going you're gonna, to... You're, there's, there's, another, there's another person next to me impersonating me like, you're gonna freak yeah. you're gonna freak us out right this minute so listen to our african <laughs> take round of villagers thank you too for listening in that's it for now do take care africa